Welcome to The Sober Effect, a show that looks at the positives of sobriety, the dangers of alcohol and the many people who are affected by it. I'm Kate. And I'm Steph. The ripple effect of alcohol is far-reaching, and those are the stories you'll hear on The Sober Effect. Episode 10, Kate. Mm. We are now in double digit land. And this one, we have Pearl. Most people will know her from at Rock Bottom Girl. If you're on sober Instagram and you don't know her, you must be in a hole because she is so funny. I mean, and she wrote the theme for the sober effect. So when you hear our little theme song at the beginning and at the end, that that is the wonderful Pearl. She's just very honest, isn't she, about what she's going yeah, through. Yeah, it's raw, thinks. right? Like, she just it's doesn't... Really raw, but it's so funny as well. It's so funny. I just love people that can make me laugh. She's bonkers, as we'd say in the UK. Really yeah. bonkers, but in a nice way. Not yeah. in a scary way. No. We all take our sobriety very seriously, but at the end of the day, like, it needs to be fun, too. Like, And I love that there's people like her that just keep showing up and showing that just because you're sober, you're not boring, which leads into what this whole episode's about, creativity. This was a big, big concern for me as a creative who's been involved in comics, in in publishing, in marketing, in all sorts of creative industries. And one of the reasons I drank was to slow my mind down at the end of the day. But I relied on that mind during the day to do the work. And I always said that alcohol helped fuel my creativity. And I was really worried that when I stopped, I was just going to struggle. And it's just crazy. It's crazy to think. I think it was just an excuse because now I know it's rubbish and it was actually doing the opposite. I was reading something the other day and it said, creativity involves focus and abstract thinking. And abstract thinking is basically the ability to think about concepts beyond what we observe physically. And if you drink, So you have one glass of wine and it slows you down and then you either continue, which means your mind goes numb or you stop and you get tired. So as soon as you take that sip of alcohol, your creativity is heading towards a dead end road, whatever you choose to do, whether you choose Mm -hmm. to carry on drinking or stop. And it, it makes sense when you look at it logically, knowing what we know about alcohol, it doesn't spark creativity at all. No, because you're not totally tapped in. You're kind of in that state of like, you don't care, right? So you may feel like since you don't care, then you're going to go for it. Like we talked about painting in this episode. Um, You and I both painted and drank wine and it gave us this. I mean, the, the further the wine bottle went down, the more I didn't care. And the more I just was like, whatever, you know. Alcohol does make you braver, So it makes you take more risks. And I think when it comes to creativity, we think that's going to make us more creative because our mind's going to go to places it wouldn't normally go. But actually, it's not always a positive thing. I'm just like thinking about the creative, the creative type things that I used to do when I was drinking and how it was very small is the best way that I could explain it. Like it never expanded very far because there was only so much time to do it because I did spend a lot of time drinking and 
my drinking was done socially. So I wanted to have enough time to like get out there with the neighbors because we drank with our neighbors a lot. So, you know, I would have like just these small windows to do it. And it just never gave me time to like really get into it and expand my mind with it. I would get bored with it. Well, of course I'd get bored with it because I'm not challenging my mind. I'm not challenging myself like to push myself a little bit further or try it a different way or do this or that or the other. And if they couldn't fit into that lifestyle with the alcohol, I would just get bored with it, which is really sad, but it just proves like how addicted my mind was to the alcohol. It just took precedence. Yeah. I think I liked the idea of drinking and being created. My idea of a writer would be to drink coffee in the morning and then wine all day mm-hmm. and leaving, coming up with these incredible stories. And it's just romanticizing it. And actually, you know, a lot of famous artists, musicians, painters, writers have really struggled with addiction to the point of death, a lot of them. And, you know, they go into very dark places and that, you know, all you have to do is Google it and you will find hundreds of famous artists who have struggled with addiction because you can see why they kind of get into that place where you just think, well, this is what I need. I'm surrounding myself. It's escapism. I'm I'm in this place where I think this way. And I think a lot of fans, especially when it comes to music, which is kind of Pearl's creative outlet, people kind of expect you to be a kind of walking mess. And, mm-hmm. and that's come, I guess, from people observing lots of, of musicians taking drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol. But when you think of a rock band, you think of them off their heads, don't you? Yeah. And I mean, it's that- acceptable. Like, you're just like, oh, well, they're in a band. Like, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And that narrative definitely needs to change because they're humans. They're people just like us. Has there been anything that you've kind of gone back to now that you're sober and like retried without alcohol? I have. I've I've done three evening courses at my local college, art courses. So I've done pottery, life drawing and printmaking. And that's for a couple of hours on a Wednesday evening. And I've absolutely loved it. They're kind of six week courses. And it's just been wonderful. I need to do more. I need to get back on the piano. I need to pick up the guitar again. Being creative comes in so many different shapes and forms. It could be being creative with your cooking or trying new things. It could be reorganizing your shelves or redecorating your house or learning gardening. All of these things are creative. Yeah, I'm trying to get back into painting. I have some really good paintings that I have done in the past. Of course, alcohol was involved. And so I'm still working up the nerve to find a way to do that again. I just completed a paint by number. (laughs) So there's a start, you know, just to like get the feel of it. Yeah. I've gone back to crochet, which I I've made several blankets with um, a bottle of wine next to me. It was always just hand in hand, but now I find it way more relaxing. If I can do something with my hands and distract myself that way, I get a flow of ideas. Like if I'm in a, like a writer's block or just a block in general, If I sit Mm -hmm. and crochet or I sit and like work on that paint by number and like take away that constant pressure of trying to think up of something and just basically focus on something else, these ideas just start flowing. And that's something that never happened before. And I think it's because when you're drinking, like how much can you really focus on how, you know, you're shutting down a part of your brain anyway, and then just focusing on the one task at hand. So I think for me, it's really opened up a whole nother like portal to my mind that used to be shut down. Creative people, I think are a bit 
scatty i mean i always think of that and i've got some incredibly creative friends and and exes and you know colleagues that i've known in the past and they've all got a bit of an edge to them and that's what makes them stand out and what makes their artwork or their music stand out because they are different but they've all also struggled to just shut it down because it's exhausting to be around people who are nonstop. And when you're the person, you can't escape that. And alcohol was that instant relief that, that we've lost by going sober. So you need to find a way. And I think you're right, getting your feet moving or getting your hands moving distracts your brain. And it's it's that simple, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost like a puzzle in itself. I'm building more. The pieces are clicking together more. Whereas before, I was just chucking them all in the bag and sort of shaking it up wasn't really doing anything just looked like lots of scrabble pieces right <laughs> thrown down on the table now I can actually make words um and that's that's it <laughs> yeah and should we hear what Pearl has to say about her amazing creative journey and how alcohol played a huge factor in that for her definitely let's let's go meet Pearl At the age of 14, I decided that I wanted to form a band and it was an all-girl punk band and we were called Uncle Ernie, which is after one of the characters in Tommy played by Keith Moon, who is the drummer from The Who. And our drummer, Zoe, who was my best friend, was absolutely obsessed with him. So we called our band Uncle Ernie. And her older sister, who was 18, was the bass player. And I played guitar and sang and wrote all the songs. So because the bass player, Claire, was older than us, we managed to get gigs in clubs and bars and things like that. And, you know, back then, nobody asked for ID at all. You know, it was never a problem. And we probably looked a bit older than we were. And we were hanging out with older people. So no one questioned it, really. So, yeah, we, we just started playing in all these dives. And they were dives, you know, and it's that whole scene. And in the UK, Steph, it was like um, a real ladette culture. And uh, it was kind of like there was a movement, Britpop, you know, everything was really cool in the 90s. And, you know, Tony Blair was prime minister. He was hosting parties with Oasis and Blur. And it was all like that. And the culture of drinking for women really stepped up a gear. So you had, you know, all these Zoe Ball, who is now famously sober. She was, you know, a ladette. And it was all that kind of thing. You know, women and girls were necking pints like like the men and, and just getting completely drunk. And it was a badge of honor. That's what I was doing. And I've been really trying to think about why I hit the ground running with drinking at that age. And I don't think it was because of my social anxiety, because I wasn't really aware that I had it. I think it was just totally uh subconscious it was like I'm in this situation this is what I want to do the whole like glamour of being in a band and being you know I, I I wanted to be an anarchist I wanted to be a rebel I wanted to do all that and for me it didn't even cross my mind that I wouldn't drink and as soon as I started like I said I hit the ground running I it was just kind of like okay well I've come home this is this is what I love. This is what I want to do. And in hindsight, obviously, that gave me all of this sort of false confidence. I was an exhibitionist and I will hold my hands up to that. I wanted attention. And that's probably linked to trauma. <laughs> it's like you look at these people on stage or whatever. 
I was a show-off. I was an absolute show-off. And I would make costumes. I'd, I would have my, my boob exposed with like rubber gloves all over me. You know, I'd sort of show my mum these costumes that I'd made and she'd say, I don't know whether to be really proud of you because it's really cool or just <laughs> totally like ashamed of you. But I would wear stuff like that on stage and I wouldn't give it a second thought. And it's kind of, yeah, horrifying to think of now. But that was totally like alcohol fueled, I'm sure, you know, just to have the the guts to do that because I don't think I would do it now. I literally just enjoyed getting wasted and going yeah. out and laughing and doing whatever I could to have fun. But that's know? that's the the prefrontal cortex, which isn't like developed yet. It's not developed until you're in your early twenties, I don't think. So all teenagers have that kind of rationale. But coupled with the alcohol, it's just the like the worst cocktail ever. I, I listened to your podcast with uh, Meg the other day and it really hit hard. And I won't go on about it too much, but I, I put myself in the worst situations. Well, I say I, I put myself in the worst situations. It shouldn't have been a bad situation, but bad things happened to me because of alcohol and because of the environment I was in and the people that I was with. But um, I was in this band and I was going to art college. So skip forward a few years. I was about the age of 17 and I moved out and I I worked in a place called the Rockin' Emporium. And um, it's a bit of an institution in the in the town that I grew up in. It's not there anymore, unfortunately. But they sold uh, retro clothing, vinyl. They did body piercing, hair salon, tattoo parlor. And I worked in there and I lived above it. And the guy gave me really cheap rent. He said, the mannequin always falls over in the front window. So just make sure you switch the alarm off and then you can borrow any clothes you want. So I used it as my extended like um, dressing up cupboard. People used to come in there. I mean, Mark Lamar used to work there. People used to come in and just drink coffee and smoke and listen to music. And it was like this hub. And I met like what I thought was my my tribe, you know, that mm. that's what I was looking for. And that's what I wanted. And I felt like invincible because music is just, you know, I, I am by no means like a professional. I love music. I enjoy playing it. I'm not a master of any instrument at all, but music is just everything to me. And when I think about my stages of drinking and my alcoholism how it progressed I look at it as like three albums that I've released in my life so this kind of hedonistic period when I was in my formative years where I thought it was a rite of passage to quote unquote bond with people over getting wasted that's kind of like my first album which is just a raw like like bleach by Nirvana like the, just mm. this hedonistic raw sound like fuck you all I'm here what are you going to do about it and no consequences and this is this is the way I, I lived and you know live it living above this shop with these people going to art college and I just thought oh my god I don't ever want my life to change this is like the dog's bollocks it's brilliant so you're very creative from a young age then you've always found you know art you've got music you express yourself in a quite a creative way by the sounds of it 
And it's so that's something you've always had. Alcohol didn't start that or trigger that in you. You've just always been like that. And alcohol almost fueled it rather than created it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that's fair to say because growing up, you know, as a small child, I was constantly writing, uh, making plays, um, drawing. I was never, ever bored. I just always had a million ideas and things to do. So I, I always, I, I spent so much time in my room just making things and painting and doing stuff like that. And like I said, it was unquestionable in my mind like of course if I'm going to continue this and now I'm an adult or whatever then I'm going to drink that's what everybody does and you know you you see it the Amy Winehouses and Jimi Hendrixes of our world it's it's an industry or a lifestyle or a vocation the person is totally underregulated especially when you become a professional you know you, you've got yes people around you mm-hmm. You've got limitless money. Quite often you're young. And so, of course, you're going to take risks and take drugs and use alcohol. So um, and I think that's why it always ends in in a disaster in what I would say is suicide, because at the end of it, if you're living your life like that and you have addiction, it's a slow suicide. Because there's this expectation when you come out as this creative person and you're creating music and you're writing songs. Do you feel like there's this heavy expectation then to always be on and always be coming up with new things? Because I mean, let's be honest, we're human. We're going to have times where we need to like rest and relax. And do you think that that expectation, that heavy expectation weighs on someone who's creative and trying to create? And that's why they're using as well to kind of keep those juices flowing. It can do because I've sort of written here in my notes, like I used to love watching sort of cult classics. I watched a documentary about the guy that wrote With Nail and I, Bruce Robinson. And he's like, well, I sit at my typewriter and I drink red wine all day. It's almost like that's what we do. And as far as like ideas drying up, I haven't really experienced that. But I'm sure a lot of people do have artistic blocks or pressure, you know, if it is their full time job to perform and to write and create new things. So, yeah, I think I think the expectation also fuels the alcohol use Mm -hmm. as well. I'm sure it's funny that you think you need that. And I know a lot of people do struggle with performing. And in fact, in the sober community, there are people who are performers who say they really struggle because now they're not drinking. The nerves kick in. It's like giving alcohol this power over like the situation, right? Because it was there. It's not. I didn't give any credit to myself. I'm not creative. I was only creative because of the wine. You know, I only had fun the other night because of the wine. I was only got through stress because of the wine. Like we always give it credit when really we did it ourselves. Yeah, you you give credit, all this credit to this substance that has so-called expanded your mind. And actually it's doing the opposite really, isn't it? Yeah, everything was fueled by alcohol. I mean, I did lots of other creative pursuits around that time. I was doing printmaking and textile design at art college I designed costumes for shows and for myself. I performed three times at Glastonbury Festival on the cabaret stage, but it was spoken word. It was a double act. And following on from that, we did a tour of London in all the comedy clubs and all of this. But we were absolutely wrecked when we were doing it. But everybody else was as well. And (laughs) 
when I I look back and I, I see old videos of it and stuff, I think, oh my God, that sounds so awful. It's just terrible. And now my standards are so much higher. Back then, my standards were very low. I didn't want to necessarily progress at learning the guitar or singing nicely or anything like that. I just wanted to be in it and be on the stage. But now my perspective has totally changed. I want to surround myself with people that I can learn from and appreciate in a way that I never would have done when I was drinking. You know, I'm two years sober. If I had the opportunity five years ago, it wouldn't have been on my mind. Oh, yeah, I could progress. I could master this. I could further myself. I wouldn't have had that. It's sobriety that has given me the opportunity to level up like in a way that I never, ever thought was possible. And playing the bass guitar literally has saved my life. I've written an ode to my guitar. My my neighbor, who's 22 years sober, who's who's in the band with me, Jim. I threw myself through his window. His his band were playing a gig a couple of years ago. I just stopped drinking, and I'd never met him before. And I, I walked past the house. They had the windows wide open, and people were just stopping and listening in the street. And I literally threw myself through the window, and I said, "I want to be in a band. I haven't played music for years." So I went and spoke to him a few days later. I just knew straight away. I could I don't I don't know if you have a spidey sense with this, but I knew straight away that he was in recovery. I just knew it. And I said, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what's happened. I haven't played any music for years because of alcohol. And he said, mm, yeah, I know that one. He said, You play the bass. I said, I don't know, I could give it a go. He said, well, take this. I'm going to give you some lessons. And um, it was like he presented me with my best friend that I had never met before. Like, seriously, it's just like the best thing that's ever happened to me. I mean, I know that I would still be sober. But the fact that he gave me the gift of this bass guitar saved my life. Uh, and that sounds really dramatic, but it really did. It really did. And um, so, yeah, now we now we do music together. And actually, everyone in our band is sober, which is hilarious. It wasn't by design. That's just how it is. So, <laughs> it's yeah. interesting because you mentioned the fact that you were in this place and you were working in this shop. You had all these cool people around you. You were sort of living the dream, which is quite similar to, to my life in London when I grew up. It was so fun and I didn't want anything to change or I had no reason for anything to change. But the problem with that is nothing changed. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, that's why I'm in my 40s and I feel like I have not developed as much as I should have. And that's the difference that you've touched on here is that you said when you got sober, you you suddenly wanted to progress. And that Mm -hmm. is such a huge part of sobriety, almost the biggest part, I think. is that it changes you because you need to fill it all and you suddenly realize it stunted me all this time because I've tried to stay in this kind of dreamlike situation which is not sustainable. We don't have that energy either to like try to do anything. When I was younger I, I didn't even really have hangovers and I think that also enabled me to keep drinking at the rate that I was drinking because I did bounce back And if I didn't, everyone would crack up laughing about it. And I'd turn up to college with an injury or a story about some guy. And 
everyone would laugh you know it all enables each other this this whole cycle but yeah getting older is a different story like processing alcohol and having all the other commitments that life throws at you and responsibilities so yeah looking back on that oh god I I really try not to look back at it with rose-tinted glasses because the reality of it was it was setting me up for two decades of absolute misery. If I could go back and speak to her, I, I wouldn't say to my former self, don't do it because I know for a fact I wouldn't listen to that. I would just have to say, you've got to be brave because this road that you're embarking on is going to fuck you over big time and you're going to have to be so brave to deal with what's coming. I have so much relief, so much relief that I'm sober. I can't put it into words. So so where were you in your kind of mid, mid-20s? Is that about where we are in your sort of story of your life? Yeah, so I, I, have, I have a son who's um, 21. So I had him when I was quite young. And then I would say this is the second album of my my drinking career. And it's kind of the the whole mummy wine thing. And I liken it to a, uh, a studio, an epic studio album, like A Night at the Opera by Queen or something by the Beatles, like Sgt. Pepper, where there's money injected into this project now. I'm not this kind of crazy teenager anymore. I've got some backing. I've got professionals around me, as in drinkers. And there's money involved. I have an income. I have means and surrounding myself with other mothers that drink and obviously still the culture in the UK. Living in Belgium now, they say, oh, I like English people because they know how to drink. This is the reputation that comes with being from England. And it's it's awful. I mean, there's booze everywhere here in Belgium, but I rarely see people in the streets like you do in the UK. I mean, you know, you must know this, Kate, because we were one of them. <laughs> I don't know what the vibe's like where you are, Steph, but... It's the same. It's the oh, same. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, um, yeah. So mid-20s, still, you know, drinking, obviously not as much as I was towards the end, but drinking a lot and play dates were wine dates with other mothers and you know I I can't even start to go into mummy wine culture because the podcast isn't about that but it is so insidious and and toxic it's just awful but still I was juggling motherhood my drinking and I was still trying to make music I was still in bands but I think this is like probably I don't know it started to slip. I mean, I uh, met my first husband around this time. I'd already met him when I was much younger. He was a sound engineer and a producer. His name's Levi. And I met him again. He came to do the sound for our band. And I said, oh, my God, I remember you. What have you been up to? And you know, he's traveled the world. He had like all these stories to tell. He, he went on tour with Joe Cocker and told me about how he had a private chef that made him mashed potato and that's all he ate and he did the sound for Shane McGowan and he he put a cigarette out on a Steinway piano on the stage and you know all this stuff so we kind of got together and he was quite a bit older than me and yeah we got together we got married and we had our daughter uh, Daisy who's nearly 16 and um, yeah we set up a studio in our house and by this time 
So I had two children. The reality of it was that I was working full time and Levi was doing music at home and producing and doing recordings from home. We were in a band together. It was amazing. We wrote so many songs together and we played so many gigs and we were so in love. And it was just like, it was wonderful. But I knew that it was going to burn out because I was burning out and I was so addicted to alcohol at that time. And even though it was like the blind drunk leading the blind drunk, I knew that I could never get sober if I stayed with him because he had been a heroin addict. So for him, alcohol was nothing. You know, when he looked at it like that, he's like, why would I do that? I used to shoot up heroin, like, and live in a, in a squat, like, drinking's nothing. But for me, I knew that I was going down this really steep slope. And it, it, it was always going to end in, in hell. So yeah, we, we split up. And it was it was amicable. It was, you know, we put our daughter first. We lived in the same town still. He would go off on tours um, and all of that. But he died a year and a half ago. Mm. And it's because of alcohol. He had acute pancreatitis. And he had a condition called thrombocytopenia, which is when you have a low blood platelet count. And it was alcohol induced. He essentially bled to death. And it's because of alcohol. And, and after all that you've you say about heroin, alcohol's nothing. Yeah. Oh. This is this is the point that so many right. people are constantly trying to say. Three million people die a year because of alcohol. It's not nothing. It is a drug. It is serious. And and there is the sad truth of it. Yeah, and, and the the liver gets all the headlines, doesn't it? Right. The liver gets all the headlines. Yep. And quite honestly, it, the his mental health was so bad because of alcohol I'm I'm sure that he I mean our daughter has autism and I'm sure that he had autism as well and I think that in his mind it was this is the way it is I'm I'm not going to change this is this is how it is and he probably knew that that's how it was going to end up and he never had any hard feelings about the fact that I had to remove myself from that situation but even then like navigating his death and at the end of it all, he was he was such a popular, well-loved man, but he had nobody. He had no one. And I had to go and empty his house and I had to organise everything because they all knew him, but nobody knew him. And that's because he ended up almost living like a recluse. Trying to navigate that, I mean, I, I didn't go to his wake because I had to protect my sobriety. I couldn't go and there was a huge like gig that was put on in honor of him and I could not go to this this uh, event. I just thought why would I go there? Why would I go there and see all of these people that is it, the very fact that he's not here is because of alcohol and why would I put myself in that situation and a lot of people really did not understand that. But after his funeral, I went back to my mum's house and I vomited. And it was just that I could not imagine ever feeling normal again after that. And alcoholism is a disease and it kills people. My daughter is the first one to say that. You know, she's had to deal with the fact that she has a father that is never going to see what she does in her life. And she rationalises it in her way by saying, but mum, he didn't look after himself. 
that's of course that's what happens when you're ill at the end of it all he he didn't want to die he said he didn't want to but he he wasn't willing he was never willing to to even consider sobriety it wasn't ever a thought that he he wanted he he never wanted that right until the last minute when it's too late which is why it's really important to have these conversations because it kills people and that's that's the bottom line isn't it really in the last 10 years i've tried to get sober so many times and it's never stuck it's only in the last 2 years it has i went to the chiropractor about 7 years ago and she was just doing the normal kind of um questions what what are your hobbies and i reeled off all my hobbies oh i like to play music i paint i write and as i was saying it i heard the lies coming out of my mouth and i thought who is this person i'm describing I don't do any of those things anymore. Drinking isn't just my hobby. It's my full-time career now. And I don't do any of those things anymore. I couldn't even imagine trying to create something. And I'd never said it to myself out loud. And I walked home from this appointment and I thought, I'm lying to myself. I'm lying to everyone around me. And I'm lying to the chiropractor. I'm lying about everything. I don't do anything. And that penny dropped hard. And I just thought I I want to be that person, but I didn't want to be that person and drunk and addicted. And I had to make a lot of changes in order to do that. It's not a quick story. But yeah, I, I have made changes, obviously, because I'm here now. But that realization and that's the first time that I really, really wanted to quit alcohol. I went to an AA meeting that week and just, oh, the woman that welcomed me, I thought, oh my God, she smells so good. I want to smell like her. Like I just, I, I walked in there looking like a wreck, you know, and I just thought, God, I will, I just want what she's got. But oh shit, have I got to do all this other stuff that goes along with it as well? And I was still in my head, but I need alcohol. I need it. I need it to do all these pursuits, which is absolute craziness because the reason I was there was because I'd realized that I couldn't do it anymore because of the alcohol. And then you end up in this weird thing where the snake's eating its own tail. It's it's just awful. What inspires you now? How do you get into your creative mind now that you aren't using alcohol? It just flows naturally, Steph. I'm not joking. The creativity just flows. And I I have a notepad next to my bed because I wake up sometimes in the night, but normally first thing in the morning, I've got ideas that I scribble down. Mm. And sobriety has unlocked this door. Floodgates are open. I want to think outside the box and I want to make people laugh because there's so much shame attached to what we do and what we did we have to find the humor in it and I do that through music and writing comedy sketches because you know, this this problem isn't going away and we have to talk about it because people die all the time from it and we have to get it out in the open
Well, I think we both agree that we absolutely love her, don't we, Steph? Absolutely. But she's so right what she's saying about using humour to get the word out. Because people, if you sort of say, I've got this really sad set of statistics for you, who's going to want to listen to that? I don't want to listen to that. And I'm interested already. But if you kind of make light of it, but you know it's got an underlying message that people can take away and digest in their own time and think... Actually, that is true. And it's not really that funny. And that's a very British way of dealing with things, you know, joking about something that's not actually funny, but then going away and deciding what you're going to take from it. But but I think she's spot on. and She's certainly doing that, isn't she, with her music and, and her reels? Yeah, she keeps me on my toes. Like every time I get on Instagram, it's like, what is she going to do today? Because she just keeps like upping the ante too. And I... Absolutely love that about her. But yeah, it's just, it's so crazy because I've always used humor. I've talked about it before. It's just kind of my coping mechanism, probably more my dad's side of the family. Like that's just what we do. Like when bad things happen, we kind of poke fun of it or poke fun of ourselves. We take our sobriety very seriously. Like there's no doubt about that. But it's just, you can't undo the past. We can't dwell on who we used to be. But if we can make a little light of it and know that like we can move forward from this, we're going to be way better moving forward from this. I mean, it just, it makes it so much, it makes it an easier load to carry, I guess, is what I'm saying. I found it really interesting that she was sort of saying when she was younger, there was no question about the fact she wasn't going to drink. You know, she was a rebel. She saw it as a badge of honor to be able to drink. She didn't even realize she had social anxiety and she just saw it as glamorous. All the people she thought were cool were were out getting wasted, whether it was drugs or alcohol. And that's society. That is society saying this is what these kinds of people do. And it's kind of, it's because it's so normal. So many people. It's an expectation almost for them. It is. And these, you know, young people see all of this alcohol everywhere and all these people that they admire drinking. And it's like this awful billboard that went up in Manchester last weekend that was giving out free wine if the temperature got to a certain, you know, degree. It would, you could go up and get free wine. It's like, what's that telling all the kids? It's saying this is a treat. And we're a big supermarket brand and we're giving free wine. And there's just so much wrong with that that I could do a whole episode about it. And I'm not going to piss on Pearl's parade by doing that. But, (laughs) you know, it's that kind of thing. So she knew if she wanted to be in the in crowd, it would involve getting wasted. And that's so sad, isn't it? It is. And I love when I asked her like what she does now that she doesn't have the alcohol. And she it was such a simple answer. She's like, I it just flows naturally. I have to have a notebook by my bed. I just love that because I watch her reels and things. And for for me, because my creativity is different than hers, I'm like, how does she come up with this? But to know that it's just so easy makes it even better. And it's Mm. more of this positivity that you get when you stop drinking and you stop hating yourself or being disappointed in yourself and you start loving yourself and liking yourself and, and suddenly you think, and I'm creating something and I actually like to eat it, listen to it, look at it, whatever it may be. And you think, I'm really proud of myself for that. And all these tiny building blocks are part of that big, overwhelming kind of pink cloud that we feel where we think life is so much better. It's just another element 
like all the other things we've spoken about in previous episodes, they all add up to becoming a completely different person, don't they? They do. Yeah. And like, let's not forget about our last episode with dopamine. Here's a really another good example. I mean, anytime you can sit in your creative mind and like you said, even when it's like when you actually have an end product, I mean, that reward right there, like you said, whether you can eat it, see it, whatever it may be. I mean, the pride that you can take in that is just like no other. I mean, it feels way better. But I think that's it, Steph. I think we're we're kind of out of time again. We never have long enough, do we? Yeah, never do. Maybe people listening are like, yeah, you've had long enough. Yeah, it's good, girls. We're good. (laughs) We're done. (laughs) Cheers, Steph. Bye, Kate. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we're just two women from opposite sides of the pond wanting to bring awareness around the negative effects of alcohol. We are not licensed therapists or doctors. If alcohol is causing any mental or physical health issues, please seek professional help. Please be sure to give us a follow so you don't miss future episodes. If you think our podcast could help someone you know, please be sure to share it. Also, leaving a five-star review will help The Sober Effect reach more people like you. The music for this show was produced and recorded by Pearl and Thumbelina Jim of the wonderful Charm Jar Music. More information can be found in our show notes.